Welcome to the Why on Earth Community Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron William Perry. And today we are at the 2023 Biodynamic Demeter Alliance Conference in Westminster, Colorado uh, for our national gathering and have the opportunity uh, to visit in person with Joy and Eric McEwen, the authors of Raising Resilient Bees, Heritage Techniques to Mitigate Mites, Preserve Locally Adapted Genetics, and Grow Your Apiary. And Joy, Eric, it's such a joy to be able to visit <laughs> with you guys it. in person um, and to be able to share a bit with our audience about your, your amazing book. Thank you so much. Yeah, That's thanks so much. Very, this really is so special. Compliment. Rather than Zoom to do it in person, yeah, it's, 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 it's a nice additional benefit to be able to be together in person. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. yeah. And we're here at the, the Biodynamic Conference, right, with so many extraordinary uh, land stewards and healers, farmers, food and medicine growers. Yeah, visionaries. Yeah. Yeah, teachers all around. Yeah. A lot of wisdom yeah. in one room. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, such a treat. I agree. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm really You're happy. Included. We get Thank to, you. Oh, thanks. I'm, I'm really happy we get to visit together. And um, uh, I'll share a bit about your backgrounds, which are really uh, extensive and impressive. Um, and this book is one of the, the many beautiful publications from our friends at Chelsea Green Publishing. So a huge shout out to Chelsea Green. And we've got a special uh, deal for you that we'll share about a little later. Um, so, to, to get things rolling, Joy, Catherine LeBlanc McEwen manages Diggin' Living Farm and Apiaries, a homestead, organic farm, and commercial beekeeping operation. She holds two Bachelor of Science degrees, as well as a Master of Science in Environmental Science from Oregon State University. When she isn't tending hives or farming, she works as an AB therapist with a practice in Southern Oregon and makes a line of Jeune beverages called Honey Bee Brews. And we're going to need to talk both about the Jeune and the AB therapy, of course. Very cool. Very cool. And uh, Joy is a committee member on the USDA Farm Service Agency Board for Josephine and Jackson counties in Oregon and also serves as a board member on the Illinois Valley Watershed Council um, and is a board member for the American apitherapy society apitherapy society so absolutely beautiful eric minch McEwen heads the beekeeping operation for dig and live in farm and apiaries that's so fun to say he holds a bachelor of science degree in botany and plant pathology from oregon state university has spent the last 20 years experimenting with the development of organic management practices while tending approximately 700 honeybee colonies. Wow, that, that's a lot. Um, a former mentor for the Oregon State University Master Beekeeper Program, Eric has served as the Southern Oregon representative on the Oregon State Beekeepers Association Administrative Board and is a member of the Adaptive Bee Breeders Alliance, a SARE-funded consortium of honeybee professionals and academics collaborating on stock improvement-focused breeding efforts. He's the originator and manufacturer of natural nest beehives, an improved style of 
eight frame Lamstroth equipment for organic beekeeping. Eric is also a trained botanist and naturalist who loves the wild side of the great outdoors. And I want to ask you about that as well. So we've got a lot to talk about, of course, in the book, which I got to say is, is so beautiful with the many uh, amazing photos, uh, many of which are in Oregon, I take it. Mm-hmm. Um, and is chock full of really practical information for beekeeping. And let's, let's kind of dive right into it. And, and let me ask you guys, mm-hmm. why beekeeping? And, and mm. what, what drew mm. you to beekeeping? And, and why Oof. has beekeeping become such a central focus of your your stewardship work your your land management work your your food and and medicine work why yeah, bees uh well bees? i mean why bees uh, you know anyone who's just experienced the presence of bees when, when you are in their company when you are immersed in their their frequency their vibrational energy uh it's it's nothing short of mesmerizing you know and and so uh i i had the pleasure honestly uh, we were talking earlier in a in a actually in a another person's talk on beekeeping today about just those fleeting moments in your life that 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 can be just this ephemeral moment but that it it gets inside you and and changes you forever you know, and honestly, in that moment today, uh, in that discussion, the moment that popped into my mind was this first time that I ever had the opportunity to open the inside, or to be present for the opening of a hive. And at that time, it wasn't my, my hives. I was, I was 21, I think, maybe, living in Eugene, Oregon. And I went to a talk by some community beekeepers who had hives at a, at a local community garden. And they were just giving kind of this run-of-the-mill talk of the fundamentals of beekeeping. And, but uh, I stuck around after the talk and they could just sort of, my inquisitiveness was palpable. And they, so they threw me in a suit and they brought me over to their couple hives they had there and opened them up for me. And I can just still remember that day like, like yesterday. And it was, you know, at the end of that additional half hour or so of getting to look at these bees with, with those beekeepers, it was just clear to me. I was like, I'm going to do this someday, you know? And, and that someday was, was, you know, another six or seven years later or something, you know? But it, it had that impression on me. And, and what it was exactly, I don't really know. I think it was the mystery, you wow. know, the intrigue and the mystery of getting to watch this highly organized society, you know, operating in all of its inter- intricacies just right before your eyes, just moving about. I mean, I was enthralled. So, yeah. um, and then, you know, I think like so many beekeepers, you, you start with one hive, and, and it, it's like, it, it grows like an addiction. I don't know that, you know. A healthy one. There, well, there's been times where maybe it didn't even feel healthy or no, maybe no. it was even out of balance. <laughs> but the fact is, there was no turning back, you know. It was just the way it was going to go. So, how about you? Yeah. I think mine feels pretty different in that what initially led me into bees, I would say I had a yearning to be a production organic farmer. 
So there was this practicality aspect for me that we moved down from the Willamette Valley of Oregon into that we found a wonderful piece of land over in Southern Oregon and it was affordable and it was on the river, but it was also forested mm. beautifully, beautiful. Mm. But it didn't look like an organic vegetable farm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so that is one part about beekeeping is that we were able to, to bring, it was initially bringing our 20 hives down from Corvallis and then multiply and then being able to have a smaller footprint and have the accessibility of clean air, clean water and abundant forage in this wild forest that really made it that this was the way I was gonna become that professional agriculturalist. Mm -hmm. yeah. So I think mine was a little bit more practical. We're usually uh, we're opposite. Usually I'm a little bit more ethereal and he's more practical, but oh, <laughs> that's okay. So yeah. there's a balance. Yeah, there we go. Oh my gosh. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Wonderful. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and I, I got asked, Joy, so apitherapy, apitherapy, how do yeah, you pronounce it? You got, you got it. it. I, I, Wow, uh, I maybe had an inkling that this was a thing, but this is a, a, a real thing, huh? Oh, it's definitely a real thing for yeah. like thousands yeah. and thousands of years yeah. and it's practiced all over the world. Yeah. So actually Eric and I, we just came back from a conference called Apamandia. It was, um, this year it was in Chile and Santiago and every other year it switches uh, spots around the world. And um, there's six major focuses of this conference. So this is gathering some of like the, you know, the, the biggest and best just be thinkers of the world. Wow. So for, it's, for apotherapy to be one of six of the main topics. Oh, wow. Okay, so one of the six main topics, Eric and I actually spoke um, on the topic of rural development, but it was really interesting to just see all of these professionals in the field of apotherapy mm -hmm. gathering to talk about their practices. So um, generally, it is um, using all the products of the hive as medicine. And then I initially got my start about 10 years ago. Um, in 2013, the American Apotherapy Society had a conference in Portland. And I attended that conference. And even at the time, most of the speakers and a lot of the members of the board were doctors. And they just kept presenting this like incredible story and hearing all sorts of various um, um, just attributes of just not just bee venom therapy, but honey and, and all the products of the hive. And um, at the same time, what compelled me into this, what felt so cool about this program and the conference at the time, was that there were so many doctors there and they wanted to share all of this research mm -hmm. and they wanted more and more people to learn about it and practice it but here they were American doctors and they're like, our hands are tied. Like, please, beekeepers especially, please get this information out um, to, to the people you interact with. And part of that is that this is uh, so much, of, so many people are practicing this around the world. Mm -hmm. So I think the US is just a little bit behind, mm -hmm. but currently I am now a board member for that American Apotherapy Society. Wow, that's so beautiful. And mm -hmm. you know, we had on a past episode, our friend Courtney Cosgriff, who's a beekeeper and doing all kinds of uh, work with food and medicine with the uh, honeybees. And, and she was talking a fair bit about some of the ancient esoteric 
mystery schools and the connection with the the bees, the beehives, yeah. the bee medicine, the yeah. vibrational frequencies. I yes. mean, this this thing is so. It really is a a holistic milieu, isn't it, for our human well-being and our direct connection with with nature, with our agricultural uh, communities and organisms, farm organisms. There's like a a node here that I I think is so potent and and probably in the mainstream of the American culture is a a bit invisible for a lot of us, right? And and it's it's so central, isn't it? Yeah. Well, I think part of it is we're just going back into all that, just the great remembering. Ah, uh, yeah. You know? I like that. Yeah. yeah. I and mean, certainly our historical cultures, you know, placed this, this, these mysteries, these schools, these, this magic at the center of, of society, right? I mean, certainly, like, we can turn to Egypt or, uh, or Central Europe. Or, Tens or of thousands of years, if not a hundred thousands of years. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Where you know the 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 mystery of the bee and the and the potency of the bee magic was was revered at at the center of culture. It was, it was you know, it occupied the sphere that everyone was well aware of. You know, and and uh, and turned to, and and, and relied upon. Yes. You know. Yeah. And just thank goodness that that's finally, I mean, if there's so many just like the simple ones, which is just like healing open wounds with honey. I mean, come on. It's like hydrophilic, hydrophobic. It produces hydrogen peroxide. They're now finally just like even during surgeries where they're like, okay, let's, we don't need wound dressing. We don't need antibiotics in this. Like, let's just use honey. And the way it like it profoundly is just like surpassing any type of traditional medicine. It's like okay. Yeah, that's a great example. Yeah, it's like a uh, super disinfectant, isn't it? It is. Yeah. And yeah, it's humectant qualities like minimize scar tissue, prevent infections. It they allow allows like a moist environment for skin tissue to heal from the inside out, and you know the best burn labs in the world are using the, the using this and you know cure of antiquity so this really kind of goes into like now kind of the push of the book like part of us and who we mm-hmm. are is that we're really interested in being food producers and specifically honey producers we're yeah. big believers in honey yeah 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 i, lo- I love honey and I have a number of we can be friends now. beekeeping friends, and <laughs> yeah. I've actually um, kept bees a little bit myself. Oh, yeah, okay. um, just a little. And, Great. Great. You know, in 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 this book um, is so beautiful, and I'll show it again for our audience that are looking at the uh, video version here. Um, Raising resilient bees, and in here you've got just lovely uh, photos, uh, lots of hands-on. Um, uh, moments that are documented in the in the photography of it and in the text of course you're covering a number of key items and issues in the course of the seven chapters and this first chapter a new apiary for a new age I was hoping you could tell us a bit about you know what's what's that all about what do you mean by a, a new apiary for a new age well I mean uh, you know I think like most people are aware that the, the bees are under pressure. It might be safe to say like we're, we're experiencing a crisis 
yeah. in beekeeping and a crisis in the environment that bees require for their their health and their well-being and and and, and that has really uh, occurred in a relatively short period of time a rel- you know it, uh, mirroring industrialization and uh, modern conventional modern agricultural practices and how fast they swept the land base right like the the vast majority of the area that humans are interacting with and modifying the climate of is now under the under the sway of these these new modern techniques and the bees uh they they just went along you know they got swept along and uh, and now here we are we inadvertently developed our food systems in these new ways so rapidly that the that the bee is uh the the consequences for the bee came about you know are, are still being felt like we're still we're now the fruit is now being harvested from from the seeds that we sowed in in modern industrial agriculture and and they're being reaped in 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 the world in the genre of the bee and so yeah like so what what the new apiary for a new age is really about is is that we are having this existential uh, crisis so that word gets used so much these days but right. with, for the bees like the bees are on the brink right so uh we we need to make a change and we need to make a change rapidly so it's important that we start articulating that vision now and, and start you know saying like what, what are the imp- what are the components and implements uh, implementation of those components what are the things that need to change now like because we we don't have another several generations that we took to create the problem to solve the problem yes. right we, we've got to solve this problem in a, in a couple decades or less you know we've got to turn this around so um that's that's what this is about is that uh, you know the way what joy and i visualize ourselves as is is a bridge we visualize ourselves as a bridge between the past and the future between conventional and sustainable you know and uh you know that yeah from conventional to regenerative you know and these these changes that need to occur they can't they can't just we can't just snap our fingers and start doing things differently we've got food systems that that you know depend on bees we have people and and livelihoods and nutrition that feeds a whole populace that's dependent upon these existing systems that we have so despite the fact that these existing systems are so messed up so unsustainable so much like guaranteeing our demise we can't just turn them on their head like we've got to talk about the st- the transition phase yeah and that's i think what what we envision ourselves as like in in the new age you know the new age that we espouse in our book operations like the operation that we run might not even really need to exist but the reality is that we're absolutely needed right now like as the bridge as the integral transition phase from this completely destructive system that dominates our food production to where we need to go which is local sustainable uh earth-friendly non-toxic you know that that, that's where we need to get to uh but but of course you know it's gonna it's gonna take a a, a creating an architecture to get there that we don't have right now yeah i'd like to add to that yeah please of course um well uh new apiary for a new age i think the other part of that is that it really involves 
community. Like yeah. we all used to be in agriculture together, like agriculture, like the brewing, the revitalization, the revival, the grouping, yeah. it involved people. And like, I don't know, there's a lot of times where farming can get really, has felt really lonely. Yes. And yes. as a mother, like yeah. sometimes I think about like the, the like mothers, the families out in like the Midwest and I like picture them in like this farmhouse and the mom just being like, I'm out of here. I'm gonna go get a, a teaching job in the city because mm. I'm so lonely. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. I think that's part of what's happening in agriculture as well. That a new period for a new age is that it involves togetherness where we remember part of that great remembering yeah. that like when our neighbor doesn't do well in farming, like we all feel it. Like remember, like we all remember. Mm. And um, I guess that's that's part of like where, where we need to come together as well is just be thinking about how to have a system that involves the interconnectivity of all of us people and being a village again together. Yeah. Oh my gosh, it's so beautiful. And, 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 and what comes to mind for me is that the, the beehive itself is literally and symbolically that that village that community isn't it yeah oh. exactly yeah the hyping they are our teachers in yeah. this way yeah so beautiful i want to i want to dive a little more deeply into the the existential crisis that that honeybees are experiencing there's this term colony collapse disorder that i think a lot of our audience will be familiar with mm, i think so and, I, and i'm curious what do you see as the leading specific uh, factors that is underlying this, this detrimental uh, phenomenon we're seeing at such drastic scales now? Um, that's a great question. I, uh, really, I think that, I think the term colony collapse disorder, while, while at one point there was like a set of specific uh, characteristics associated with it, I think really what's important about that notion of colony collapse disorder is that it's indicative of a series of a suite of factors yeah. that are affecting the honeybee today. So th there's there's several you know key factors that are contributing together to this malady that the bees are suffering. Mm -hmm. Certainly, one of them is the parasitism of honeybees by the varroa mite, which originated in Asia. Uh, it was originally a parasite of a different species of honeybee. Due to human activity and overlap of these honeybee species, it, create, it jumped ship and made a host shift to Apis mellifera, the Western honeybee, which is the, the species of honeybee that's essentially kept by people around the world. When, when the Varroa mite made this host shift, it also changed its, its reproductive biology to infecting the larva, the brood of the worker bees, and thus destabilize the ability for a colony to reproduce yeah. uh, safely. So yeah. that's definitely a component. And how the varroa mite affects the vitality, the health of a colony is complicated. And uh, clearly one way that they do so is by vectoring viruses. Yeah. So we've seen this total upending of, of viral evolutionary biology where you know the natural tendency of a virus is to evolve towards being benign the longer i can live in my host the farther my host is going to spread me yeah. 
And so most viruses tend to evolve towards being benign, perhaps even having no symptomology at all, mm. right? But, but the relationship of honeybee colonies from one to another and the fact that one will, will opportunistically uh, feed on the resources of a failing colony means that when a colony is collapsing from varroa mite infestation, that you then have this rapid transfer of the, of the mites to other neighboring colonies. Wow. So all of a sudden you have a horizontal transmission of viruses instead of a vertical transmission from parent to child. And that creates this new evolutionary uh, uh, evolutionary pressure to, yeah. towards virility, towards, wow. towards being more and more lethal. So that's what we've seen is we've seen viruses that were thought of as inconsequential that are now killing colonies. Yeah. Those are certainly components of, of of the of this crisis for bees but but at, at the at the core of it all is another whole phenomenon which is toxicity and lack of habitat lack of forage so when do we see these symptoms of ccd or when do we see these regionally unsustainable losses mushrooming up you know uh it's when when climate change or weather comes in and creates a situation where you have whole regions where the bees are lacking insufficient forage. Yeah. Or for instance, in the heartland where bees are trying to exist in these seas of monoculture yeah. that are just being bathed in chemicals that we know are bad for insects. Yeah. You know, and all life. And all life. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, you're weakening the immune system of the bees. You're by, uh, uh, you know, reducing their ability to access healthy food. You're weakening their immune system by bathing them in chemicals. And then you have, uh, you know, unsustainable parasite loads and uh, extremely virile viruses. And they are like this cocktail that comes together and creates these huge regional rates of losses. Uh, and it's kind of like moving around the globe at any particular time. But like, for instance, last year, Oregon and Washington near where we keep these had loss rates well above the national average. And, you know, these are regions that are uh, maybe not as intensively farmed as other parts of the country and regions that tend to have more pristine environments. And yet it's still, uh, you know, a, a complex problem. So, but that I think are, those are kind of the main key factors. Yeah. Let me ask, um, in one of the talks I attended earlier today, um, we had a discussion around the uh, effects of uh, electromagnetic uh, frequency pollution mm -hmm. as well coming from our uh, wireless and cellular communication, our, our satellite internet connectivity. I don't know. I'm not an expert in this topic. I'm curious if you're seeing that as contributing as well. Well, I know. I mean, we have three daughters, 12, 15 and 19. Yeah. And like just the way that it I mean, it's just so addictive for all of us humans. Mm. Like there's just so many different factors going on yeah. where. I mean, of course, it's just thinking about these small little insects, these honeybees. Yeah. You know, if it's affecting us at this large of a level, like yeah. how is it affecting these honeybees? Like, I don't know. Do you know, like any specifics? But you can just see by by scale. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I love, you know, we're sort of here in situ in the middle of the conference. And as people are walking by, there's this... <laughs> 
energy and this excitement, this exuberance. They must have felt and, that. They heard and, the EMF yeah, and they're like, I, ah! I hope the audio is okay for everybody as, <laughs> sure. as we're having these, you know, parties of amazing people walking by. Um, <laughs> but yeah, this, 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 this convergence of all these different factors obviously is having such a profound effect on the bees and to, to a point you were making earlier, Eric. It's not an exaggeration to say that a huge portion of the food that we're uh, dependent on is pollinated by the bees, yeah. right? That's, of that's, that's, not, not, that's not an exaggeration. So if, you, if you're hoping to eat something more than porridge or gruel, then you should be cherishing the bee because, mm -hmm. you know, dairy industry, for instance, mm -hmm. not a lot of people think about milk but alfalfa is the hmm. pollinated crop. You know, if alfalfa seed isn't getting produced, then alfalfa isn't getting grown, then cows aren't being fed alfalfa, then the dairy industry goes south. You know, like, so it, their, their influence is far reaching. I think the statistic today is that they're responsible for $16 billion worth of agricultural productivity in the United States annually. Yeah. Well, so. and then not only that, it's just like how dependent the, the deer are, the Right. On, on pollination, the birds are on yeah, pollination, yeah, the yeah, bears yeah. are the, on pollination. The entire ecology. And yeah. then yes. what Eric and I, we, we tend to like to talk about quite a bit is just how honeybees really increase the carrying capacity of the land. And mm. that in itself is like the honeybees are like profoundly increasing um, just the productivity of any kind of farmscape landscape. Um, especially degraded landscapes yeah. like they especially just degraded landscapes. are turning it around yeah yeah so there's yeah. a huge regenerative yes yes thank you for yeah okay. i mean exactly their right. poop their, their their poop is like probiotic like vitamins being spread all across the landscape plus just their their dead bodies as well but they are contributing so much in the form of like i mean we've had a, a couple different bee yards where we have one in particular that we used to call Mars. It was just like this rocky ground. Wow. And then you put honey bees on the landscape and we're growing like, I mean, soil, uh, grasses, mm -hmm. uh, flowers. I mean, and, and so you can see that this isn't just beneficial to to the to the honeybees. I mean, this is beneficial to all, all of the beings around it. Well, yeah. as a, you know, as a talking point like social insects, AKA ants, bees, wasps, and termites account for like 80% of the insect biomass on the planet, or maybe it's even like animal biomass. I, I don't, but they, they're foundational to the primary productivity of the land. And it was actually just this morning, Alex from Spikenard Farm in his, in his uh, discussion, he was talking about how when you bring bees onto a, a land, just their dead exoskeletons can increase ant productivity by like 40% on a site, you know? So we don't even have the awareness to understand how much that affects the productivity of the land. If you can increase the productivity of ants yep. by 40% with the presence of one species in, in, a, in an area, that is, that's foundational. Like, you know, we are inconsequ almost inconsequential as a species compared to that. <laughs> it's one of our favorite parts about being beekeepers and just even just being humans is like, what is our net growth of soil we've accumulated in our lifetime? Like, yeah. Yeah. you know? 
Like, what yeah. have you done? How much soil have you brought yeah. back to the yeah. earth? You yeah. know, yeah. honeybees are responsible for lots of it. So, so literally, we can think about the honeybees and the hives as spreaders of fertility. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Completely. Not yeah. just the pollination, but literally yeah. the yeah. fertility of the soil. Probiotics. Yeah, and George mentioned, yeah, their yeah. feces actually have lacto and bifidus bacteria in them. So, like, they're actually seeding their environment with probiotics. Amazing. Yeah. That's tremendous. We love it. Like, sometimes we'll have a, like a pallet of hives and you move them, and you can just see the, the grass all around, like, building mm. up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, we literally move colonies into places that we're trying to improve the soil, you know, and, and produce more soil on ground that's lost its topsoil for whatever reason, mining or over production in ag or whatever, will bring bees into these sites. And it's like a jump start. I mean, of course you can see it in the little ring right around where the bees were, where how all of a sudden the grass grows six inches tall and is dark green and flowers start popping up. But then you start realizing that our awareness just isn't quite capable of seeing it on the landscape, but it's happening on the landscape. We have the pleasure of of stewarding a piece of land that was hydraulic mined in the turn of the 20th century. And when when we inherited the stewardship of this land, uh, it was still devoid of vegetation a hundred years after this destructive practice had occurred. And now we're just so ecstatic to, to tell people about how the, the honeybees, the presence of honeybees and the intensive use of honeybees on this property has just jump-started the regenerative process. We now have thick grass growing along sides of the roads. All this ground that was devoid of vegetation has now got the plants growing on it. And I mean, imagine the, the yeah. carbon fixation that's yeah. occurring there and yeah, it's really yeah. exciting we That's did a so lot amazing. of deep listening on that land too uh, like yeah. when we first got it we it, it had gone through a lot of hardship yep. and so we kind of just had to tell it right from the get-go like we're not here to hurt you like we're not going to cut your trees we're just going to listen yep. and now we're really in this wonderful symbiotic relationship yeah yeah, I was just going to say this uh, This key word came up earlier today, relationship and yeah. mm-hmm. the reciprocity, the respect, the reverence. It seems that you guys are embodying this and you're, you're doing this on this land that you're stewarding in such yeah. a beautiful way. Yeah. Thanks. And helping others do it too. Yeah. yeah. And, and so you, and you have three teenage daughters. Are they all mm-hmm. teenage? We have three teenagers. 15 and 18, yeah. And so are they... Uh, and pretty engaged in this work that you're doing? Well, part of it is it, it's been their whole life. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. So if it's not even just with, they've been around bees when they were really little, they used to just stick their hands in honey and kind of like <laughs> walk around the farm to try to have the bees land on them. And then they just, you know, you kind of pet them and talk to them. Yeah. So, and then they were, they've always just, it's, it's been their way of life. Them. Maybe, yeah. yeah, spent more time than they would have cared to uh, in the back of a bee truck, but you know. It was pretty, well, Fern, the oldest, she loves to talk about, she loves to talk about the smell of the bee truck. Yeah. You know, I had in my notes to, to ask you about this, because I, I remember when I was keeping a hive, the aroma yeah. is so, mm, I mean, it's like a spa, right? It's like aromatherapy. It is. It is. All the volatile oils, especially just opening up the hive. Um, that and I mean, it's, it has all sorts of effects just on your nervous system and then chronic respiratory mm. illnesses. 
to be able to like uh, smell just it's uh, the propolis it's all just alive and it's like bioregional aromatherapy you know it's like place-based aromatherapy yeah. where yeah, there you go. you're actually like reacquainting your own senses your own nervous system with the or you know with this with the plant substances of your own space your own home yeah I think it's like a deepening of your body's connection to the land when you breathe that air. Yeah. It's old. It's just an old feeling. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love it. I, I'm wondering, so you guys clearly are doing so much in the way of the direct stewardship. And it, one of the chapters, by the way, that I want to ask about has to do with um, managing the the mite uh, issue. I'm curious too. You're seeing this therapeutic benefit for people broadly. You're you're thinking and cultivating community and connection among and between people and land stewards. I'm wondering if 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 you were to envision, you know, in the near term, a year, two, three, four, five years from now. If we could wave our magic wand and see a very different relationship in general among the population in general and bees in particular, what would that look like? What, what do you think we can see happen? I don't know. I love it. I want to just soak that up. I mean, uh, I think for starters, like I, I, I hold space in my heart for a, a steady like something that we can really wrap our mind, uh, minds around like a steady change an incremental change in agricultural practices I think is just at the heart of it all I think I think a bunch of chemicals need to be banned yeah. in our country yeah. and yeah. we could lead the way uh, for the world you know and just eliminating the use of these toxic chemicals and and I know that that scares farmers because they see these these chemicals as sometimes their only tools to affordably produce their products but I think we as a society need to combat that mindset we need to let our farmers know that we have their back that we will accept we will absorb and accept a rising cost of production that will accompany removing these tools from their from their tool belt because that we just have to do that like for all of our sake for the waterways for the insects in the waterways for the soil for the earthworms that are having like ner like having nervous system dysfunction from the chemicals in the soil you know this is this is certainly goes beyond bees but bees are uh, you know the variable canary or what have you and and the bees are telling us like you got to change your ways so yeah it, it, i think number one is we got to get rid of chemical agriculture yep. and and then and then we need to see a greater proportion of our land base returned to natural systems you know as a permaculturalist i've seen you know uh i've seen mathematics that suggest that we could support a population on the globe of 10 billion with 20% of the land base, yeah. that 80% of the land base could be returned back to natural systems. Now, 
Would that require us to make massive changes in our lifestyle and our standard of living? You bet. Maybe we're not going to get there tomorrow. Maybe those austerity measures aren't going to ever be implemented. But do we need to start going in that direction? Do we need to start valuing those, the, the inherent, like, yeah, we need to value the quality of natural systems and what they bring to us economically. You know, we, we take all these economic inputs uh, for granted. But the reality is they're, they're not fixed. Like, they... they they take maintenance by nature. I want to, I want to, I want to kind of lean into one of the things you're saying here and, and push a little. And enjoy. I really want to hear from you on well, my previous question. Well, just the magic, yeah. the magic wand. I'm yeah. like, oh yeah, God, it. really? Wait a minute. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Well, I, let me just say this: this notion of the austerity. I wonder if the transformations we envision might not result in much higher quality of life anyhow. And we might be thinking right now that, oh wow, these are austerity measures, we're going to be giving so much up. But one of the things I really wonder, especially with modern industrial culture and society, is how much we're giving up right now. I agree. And my yeah. sense is that our, our, our sense of joy, our sense of humanness, our sense of community, connection, health yeah. and wellness, mental health, immune system health, yeah. all of that might actually improve as a result of these steps that will probably be taking one way yeah. or another. Um, Go ahead. I, I just, well, really quick, I'm just going to say yeah, super quick. As a response to that, like, uh, the, you know, the agricultural sector yeah. is responsible for the use of a lion's share of the resources, right? Yeah. And yet, how much food goes to waste, yeah. right? Like, just as a feedback to what you're saying like yeah. if we could ever just improve efficiency here people like we might not have to change our lifestyle at all if we just improve efficiency we just need to apply i mean i'm not a technologist but uh, but let's be real we certainly could improve the way we do things on this planet and improve the cost of productivity so much like so yeah. what were you yeah. okay magic well, one oh, magic no, one well, I guess part of it for me, it's, 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 it's a little bit scary to say, but part of the magic wand is for us to respect and deliver of like what it means to have a strong local food economy, you know? And so what does that mean? Am I wishing that the I-5 is going to close? Am I wishing? I'm not, I'm not. But I am saying at least for us to be doing some tests for actually how strong we are, you know, like how strong is a local economy? It's like how many times a dollar gets used in a system without leaving the system, right? And so right now, Amazon just like increased their profit. Like third quarter last year, it was like $2 billion. Third quarter this year was like $9 billion. Like they're sucking money out of the local economies. So if I were to wave my magic wand, it's about it is about local producers and respecting other, how do we create that strong local economy and have more local producers? Like what is it that we actually need? And what is it that is not just like, I don't know, like this idea of convenience that comes down yeah. the I-5. Like I yeah. get kind of frustrated when there's like 50 different types of yogurt. I'm just like, look at this idea of convenience. It's like packaging, distribution, a truck to another truck, to a train to the truck, to the plastic to the truck, like all in this idea of 50 different types of yogurt. 
<laughs> and I think the other word for this idea of convenience is actually carelessness. Interesting. Like, do we actually, like, yeah. is this a mask? Because all we really should want here is, like, that one super dank type of, like, goat yogurt yeah. with the honey really and its OG and everything about it. Like, and so sometimes, like, if I were to wave that magic wand, it, it, it just has a lot to... I just think we'll be so much stronger. We'll be so yeah. much stronger if we could just cut out this idea of, of needing only these types of conveniences. Yeah, yeah. And, and maybe somehow like raising consumer awareness about what is quality, what is right. what is of value here, you right. know? Like, you, you know, people are subject to, it's been proven advertising works. And so all of this money is spent to beguile people into, into desiring things that aren't good for them and aren't good for the environment. And if people could just raise their awareness, raise their consciousness, you know, I eat really well. I eat such good food for my body. And you know what? I don't spend much money on doing it. I just eat a really simple diet. Mm -hmm. And I'm not asking everyone to eat the way I eat, but, but become aware of what you're actually, what you're voting for when yeah. you buy a, a box of Cheerios because they're affordable. Like maybe- Glycosate, yeah, yeah. so much chemicals. You could, you could have spent that same amount of money on whatever, whole rolled oats that didn't come in a package and you know, like, I just wish that people could spend a little more time educating themselves on the, because it really does come down to people voting with their dollar. That's how we're going to change our society. But the fact is, you know, corporations, what have you, the, the social economic structure that we live in have essentially eliminated our middle class, squeezed us all down to the point where people are desperate barely have enough money to subsist on and so they're making these survival based choices but i think unfortunately they don't realize that they're making decisions that are not in their own best interest and how could we bring that back around yeah. through a local economy through awareness and uh you know and a level playing field right like a government that actually supports sustainability and government that supports local economies instead of subsidizing corporate ag like you know the subs the federal subsidization of corporate agriculture is a major criminal activity that we are all paying for with our tax dollars and it's it's deepening the problem the reason why amazon and home depot and all these corporations are crushing it right now is because our government is implementing policies that favor large corporations over small entrepreneurs even though small entrepreneurs formed the majority of our economy certainly until covid so i think we need to look at uh changing that back to that or increasing yeah. that yeah. well said were you gonna add to that? Trip? No, well said. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. 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 Wow. Wow. Yeah. It's it's uh, so much to consider in all of this, from the ecology to the health and wellness to the economy. Yeah. I love it. I absolutely love it. Yeah. Let me ask. I want to get to the the mites. Just yeah. Mm -hmm. this, sure. This chapter is important. You put together specifically for tools and techniques to help manage the situation with the mites. Could you, can you tell us about this? Well, maybe we could start with just a little bit of a summary of natural nest beekeeping. Yes. Don't you yes, think? Yes, yes. Sure. Because one of the um, tenets would be about... Just as a little background, I mean, mites are 
you know, public enemy number one in beekeeping. I mean, okay. close second would be agrochemicals, okay. in my opinion, and, and habitat loss. So habitat loss, you know, is maybe the first thing that caused a decline in productivity of honeybees around the world. Agrochemicals, maybe the second thing. And then varroa mites and their potency has become maybe the premier problem of beekeeping around the world. So prior to the varroa mite, beekeepers around the world were probably the big, the most staunch uh, adversary of chemical agriculture in any agricultural sector. Beekeepers were you mean always against. yeah adversary. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, So beekeepers were you know the most outspoken people against chemical ag because they were the first ones to feel the effects of chemical ag. Bees and chemicals don't mix. Mm -hmm. So beekeepers have always been organic. Beekeepers have always been alternative to some extent. But when the varroa mite threatened to bring the entire industry down, beekeepers were desperate, and they were for their livelihoods, they were for literally their watching their enterprise just sift right through their hands. And so, probably uh, against their better judgment, but out of lack of options, they turned to the chemical industry, and and the chemical industry delivered. Uh, uh, you know, chemical, it's hard to kill a bug on a bug, you know, and mm -hmm. dosage and everything, uh, it, that's, a, you know, the, the kind of thing a, a chemist loves, right? Mm -hmm. So they're going to figure that out for you. Um, and the reality is they did. They figured out chemicals that could kill mites without killing the bees, and they saved the beekeeping industry mm -hmm. to some extent, and the beekeepers became an unwilling spokesperson for the chemical industry and mm. and and it was a, a, a really sad marriage but that's the state of things right so that's that's what happened and and everyone hoped you know we're about 40 years into this and everybody hoped that the varroa mite and the the, the parasitic relationship of the varroa mite was going to slowly evolve towards being more benign mm -hmm. that, that that over time maybe the bees would develop their own mechanisms to deal with the varroa and the varroa maybe would become less lethal or something. And unfortunately, that just doesn't really seem to have been the case. While there are a few instances where feral populations around the world are developing mechanisms of survival, they don't translate very well when it comes into beekeeping uh, under human care hmm. or a lack of uh, geographic isolation. So anyway, that's the background story. And the reality is, yeah, like we have to, we have to break that. We have to, we have to develop new methods, new technologies to use substances that aren't toxic, substances that aren't just allowing uh, uh, our food to be poisoned while simultaneously helping the varroa mite build up resistance to a certain chemical, and then we have to use a harsher chemical, and then the varroa mite builds up a resistance to this kind. That's like the treadmill that most conventional beekeepers are on right now. Their their chemical yeah. tools are failing. So right now we're at a place where the beekeeping industry actually, ironically, is turning to these organic methods because mm -hmm. organic methods utilizing substances that are uh, have a different mode of action instead of some very specific biochemical interruption or something. They're not substances that are that easy for an organism to develop resistance to. For instance, mm -hmm. I, if I pour acid on you, you know, it's going to take a lot of generations for you to evolve a thicker skin, right? Mm -hmm. It's probably not going to happen. So the reality is these organic methods that are non-toxic, 
not uh, harmful to our food supply are actually being employed more and more right now. So that's the good news is that uh, more and more people are realizing their chemical fixes aren't working and they're actually looking at other other tools uh, and tricks and methods that can interrupt the varroa's ability to to breed effectively inside the colony. So our chapter on varroa mites is really about integrated pest management. It's yeah. about trying to not overly rely on a substance, uh, but uh, but also explore the ways in which we can employ manual manipulations of the colony, including such things as a break, uh, a breaking up of the brood cycle to eliminate the varroa mites ability to reproduce constantly in the colony or to have this constant increase of varroa mite populations inside the hive. If we can create little interruptions in their growth curve, then we can kind of bring them back down the baseline and create a situation where you know, the varroa mite maybe is always present in the hive, but they're not uh, reaching these these lethal levels. So, Great. And, and part yeah. of that is by understanding the mite lifestyle uh, cycle, yeah. Yeah. and then also integrating into that, what we do is uh, natural queen rearing. Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah. And, yeah. And Joy, is this the natural nest beekeeping? Tell us, what is that? Yes. What, what is that? What uh, is well, that our na natural nest beekeeping is something that we have kind of just developed over these years as really being a myriad of different techniques. It's kind of a combination of a lot of different things that we do. Yeah. So when we say natural nest beekeeping, what we're doing is we, it's, it's our way that we've been beekeeping, mm -hmm. and we're looking at... Well, first we look at kind of the hive itself. Yeah. So the hive itself and making sure that it's made of um, suitable, sustainable materials. And this is just like, so for us that is wood and wax, but it's also wood that is sustainably produced or harvested. Mm. What Eric and I really enjoy is we enjoy knowing the wood. We enjoy knowing where the wood comes from and the farms that it comes from. And we enjoy the beautiful patterns it makes and the aliveness of the wood itself. Beautiful. We enjoy that it's from where we live. It's yeah. not from clear-cut pines. So that's a big part of it too. Pines in particular are just a pine wood, especially waterlogged over the winter. It's just heavy and the bees do cold pretty well, but they don't do wet. Mm. They don't do humidity. And we have, you know, daughters and they're just, they're just, and, and, mm. and instead for us to be able to work with cedar and redwood and from farmers and farms that we know, um, standing and, and dead wood, standing dead wood or, or yeah, even yeah. savage wood. And then also that it's closed cells. So in that case, it has an R value. It's not so yeah. heavy. Um, for insulation, yeah. Yep. Yeah. So that's Dry kind of a big warm. part of it. So one is like, is looking at the hive itself. Um, another would be just our um, using organic and biodynamic methods. Yeah. Another would be that uh, a natural queen rearing that we really appreciate. Well, we just we're like we surrender to to the to the mystery of life of not knowing we we enjoy being able to say that we don't know which is the best egg which is the best queen out mm. of this frame we appreciate that 
the, the bees obviously are the ones who know the best. Yeah, we defer to the wisdom of the hive. Yeah. yeah. And the lineage of the hive in that respect as well. Yeah, the maintenance of the that. lineage of the hive. Love that. And then, you know, well, I was just going to say... we got a couple more points. Right there in the natural queen rearing, there's just sort of this... Uh, there's some, something that's kind of cool, which is that if you raise a queen without employing... So, you know, the, the main method for queen rearing and dissemination of queens to, to the industry is using a technique called grafting. One of the upsides of grafting is that you... Uh, you are the product of grafting is as, as a capped cell inside of which is a pupated queen that you are then inserting into a queenless colony and it emerges into that colony within a couple days of being placed there and and it's a very rapid uh means of starting a new colony so we don't employ that technique the upside of not employing that technique is that uh, the process that we use for rearing queens is actually much slower and the, the upside of that is that from the period of time that we create a queenless colony to that period of time when that colony has a new queen in it that's laying is essentially a full month it's about 30 days and in that 30 days a really awesome thing happens which is that all the brood in the colony emerges and there is no brood any longer in the colony prior to the new queen laying her first egg. And that is a very simple thing that is a break in the brood cycle. The varroa mite requires brood to reinfest, and they have a very limited period of time that they can move around in the colony before they need to go and reinfest a new uh, larva to, to infect and feed on. And so if there are none, then it results in a lot of the fertile mites, the mature mother mites being essentially flushed from the colony. Wow. Okay. So this, just this simple thing of going back to sort of the old way of raising queens had this inadvertent advantage that the mites don't actually thrive under yeah. that management yeah. practice. So that's that's a, like at the backbone of, of how we take care of our bees and how we manage our mite populations. Absolutely kind of beautiful. both together. Yep. Absolutely beautiful. Let me um, remind our audience, this is the Why on Earth Community Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron William Perry. Today we're visiting with Joy and Eric McEwen, the authors of Raising Resilient Bees. And you can probably tell by the background noise <laughs> that we're in the middle of a very uh, festive and joyous uh, biodynamic national conference here in Colorado, Westminster, Colorado, 2023, uh, hosted by the Biodynamic Demeter Alliance. I want to give a couple shout outs, um, especially uh, to Sheila Foster. We recently did a podcast with her. She's the executive director of the Biodynamic Demeter Alliance, of course. Our friends Brooke Levan and Stephanie Sizen have both been on the podcast and they're here. They gave a talk earlier today. Uh, a friend Courtney Cosgriff mentioned her. Also, uh, Scott Black from the Xerces Society looking a lot at this chemical impact oh. on uh, invertebrate uh, insect populations broadly. Um, that's a really important episode. Want to be sure to 
give a huge shout out to Chelsea Green Publishing. And of course, again, uh, Raising Resilient Bees is a Chelsea Green publication. Um, and if you're interested, you can get a 35% discount on all the Chelsea Green publications using the code YOE35. So a huge shout out to Chelsea Green. We also want to thank Purium Organic Superfoods, Waylay Waters, Biodynamic uh, Hemp Infused Aromatherapy Soaking Salts. We will have these tomorrow at the uh, showcase. Um, profitable Purpose Consulting, helping companies get B certified. Earth Hero Sustainable Products, Soil Works Biodynamic Garden Preparation, cool. Earth Coast Productions, and of course our many ambassadors and our growing global ambassador network. We want to give a special thanks to everybody who gives monthly to the Wild Earth community. And if you haven't yet signed up for our monthly giving program and you'd like to, you can go to wildearth.org, just click on the donate button select any amount that works great for you. If you'd like to do the $33 or greater amount per month, as a thank you gift, we'll send you a jar or more than one, depending on your giving level of the Waylay Waters soaking salts as a thanks. That's uh, in the United States that we can do that. And um, we've got a beautiful opportunity after our main podcast to have a little behind the scenes chat that gets published for our ambassadors and our ambassador resources oh, section of the platform. Yeah. So we'll, we'll transition to that in a moment, but perhaps just to uh, kind of wrap things up here with the, the main episode today, I want to ask, how does biodynamics play into your beekeeping specifically and in, in your farming and land stewardship yeah. generally? Can you paint? A picture for maybe some of our audience members who might not be as familiar? That's a great question. Um, well, for starters, you know, bees derive their nutrition from the land. Yeah. So when we engage in spiritually scientific practices of revitalizing the land, we are playing a part in revitalizing the land for the bees, right? Yeah. And we, as we engage in these practices in agricultural settings, we're creating superior forage for the bees. But furthermore, it was, it was really Rudolf Steiner's lectures on the bees that had a profound influence on our practices. And a number of the practices that we utilize in managing our colonies are, are derived from Demeter's standards. So early on in our beekeeping, we found Demeter's standards and realized that they, that they resonated with us, that, that we shared uh, those as common values. And so before we really even knew much about our interest in, in uh, aligning with Demeter or what have you, it was clear that these these requirements made sense. They just, and, and you know, a specifically a foundationless brood nest and, and uh, queens reared without the practice of grafting. Those and were- And an uninterrupted comb. Yeah, an un uninterrupted, uh, naturally constructed brood nest and, and queens reared in a natural fashion by the bees themselves. And, you know, just right there, you're just like, yeah, that's the way it's supposed to be. So, 
they were the only organization that called out those other conventions for what they were, you know? And, and organics hasn't addressed them. No mm -hmm. one's addressed them. And yet, you know, Rudolf Steiner called out the practice of grafting as potentially destructive to the honeybees a hundred years ago. Yeah. And so clearly uh, his vision was right on the money and, and Demeter upholding his vision through, through holding these as standards for beekeeping made it clear that this was the only organization that really aligned with our own personal integrity as beekeepers. Beautiful, beautiful. And then I think another part of what biodynamics is, it really is this whole system approach. And so in beekeeping, when you're like, okay, I wanna like start beekeeping and get a hive. It's like, is it really about like buying it, calling up someone and being like, you know, most of the pine bee boxes you get are from like, clear cuts I mean like so or you're gonna order this or you're gonna order that instead plastic. I think kind of and plastics and so instead the type of beekeeping that we wanted to do was the whole system approach and know all the components of it and then I also just think on a personal level too which was that like like in part of like um, Waldorf education and just biodynamics in general it's like it's nurturing the whole tree not just yeah. one branch of the tree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that is something that I've always really resonated with. Beautiful, yeah. I absolutely love that that metaphor. It's literal and it's figurative. Mm -hmm. um, just the whole tree. just want to say really quick that plastics, like we've always, we feel like the products of the hive are medicine, right? They are nothing short of medicine vital for for the vitality, for the essence of what it means to be a human. But, but uh, no, you know, as organic standards became uh, under, the, under the management of the USDA, the whole issue of plastics got completely ignored. So, yeah. you know, Demeter are the only ones saying that plastics and honey do not belong together. Wow. Like this is simple foundational stuff, but it's like as beekeepers with strong opinions on these topics, like they're the only people to align with because they're the only people calling out these yeah. ridiculous incongruencies well, in other parts of the industry. So. And then in the industry itself, just to be noted, there's plastic all over the place, plastic frames, plastic hives, and it really is junk. It is stuff that just goes into landfills. Right. Yeah. Not to mention into your food and into your body. Yeah. 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 Well, this is absolutely wonderful, and you guys, thank you so much. And I, I want to be sure to mention that folks can get the books at chelseagreen.com. Again, use the code YOE35 for that discount if you'd like. And you can connect directly with Joy and Eric at digginlivin.com. Of course, we'll have these links in the show notes. And on Facebook, Diggin Farm and Apiaries, and on Instagram, Diggin Bees. And um, you guys, we're going to transition to our behind the scenes segment right. and uh, conclude our main podcast episode. It's been such a, a honor, a joy, and a privilege to have this opportunity to visit with you. Mm -hmm. Thanks so much and, and thank you for putting the uh, time and, and effort into creating such a beautiful and uh, resource rich book for everybody. Thank you. Ernie. Yeah, and I gotta just say thanks to our kids because we needed to write it down for them and they got us to actually do it. Yeah. To the kids. Yeah. Yeah. Love Thank you all. guys. <laughs> Great. Yeah. Bye now.
The Why on Earth Community Stewardship and Sustainability podcast series is hosted by Aaron William Perry, author, thought leader, and executive consultant. The podcast and video recordings are made possible by the generous support of people like you. To sign up as a daily, weekly, or monthly supporter, please visit whyonearth.org support. Support packages start at just $1 per month. The podcast series is also sponsored by several corporate and organization sponsors. You can get discounts on their products and services using the code WHYONEARTH, all one word with a Y. These sponsors are listed on the whyonearth.org backslash support page. If you found this particular podcast episode especially insightful, informative, or inspiring, please pass it on and share it with a friend whom you think will also enjoy it. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for your support. And thank you for being a part of the Why on Earth community.